and Nehemiah feels so discouraged. And then God puts it into his heart to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And as they start the labor of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, there's this little scripture that most people never notice. It's Nehemiah chapter 4.10. They say, there is so much rubbish, we are not able to build the wall. And I think this is a great lesson for us about being still and finding peace. The first order of business for them was to clear out all the rubbish so they could build what God had put into Nehemiah's heart. And I think one of the challenges we all face in our lives with being still is that there is so much rubbish, whether that's physical possessions and mess or too many obligations or social media and being overwhelmed with just keeping up with digital distractions. All of this rubbish in our lives makes it really hard to be still and have peace. Though the year 2020 is not over, I know for me when I've looked back at what has already occurred this year, the word that I would use to describe 2020 would not be peace, would not be stillness, um, would not be rest, relaxation, uh, all of those things. And yet, when I take a second and really think about what I have learned over the last seven or eight months in the ways that I've grown. It is every bit of peace and stillness, but maybe not the way that I had ever considered that that peace or that stillness would come. However, I found it very, very, very pertinent, the things that we talk about in this episode, Uh, so much so that I often won't go back and listen to an episode twice. I feel like, well, I'm there the first time. Why am I not remembering it? If it's memorable, I I should get it the first time. But finding myself going back through a second time and picking up a whole other load of nuggets of uh, just great reflections, things that will help me and, and hopefully serve me for a long time to come. So I hope you enjoy this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, visiting with John Hilton III. The way that this episode came about is uh, Brad Wilcox, you know, episode 380 of the Cultural Hall. I asked him, I said, first of all, uh, why didn't you tell me that you're going to be called into the young men's presidency? But that is a (laughs) discussion for a different time. But then I also asked him, I said, who else would you recommend to be a great guest for the Cultural Hall? And without hesitation, he said John Hilton III. He made the introduction. Welcome, John Hilton III. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here, Richie. Uh, It's important that we find out who the second and first of the John Hiltons were. It's a great group. The first is my grandfather, John Hilton. No extra name at the end. And then my father, John Hilton Jr., so you, I've got a son, I've got a son, John the Fourth. So it's an ongoing legacy. Is it a thing that you hope will continue beyond John the Fourth? You know, my dad told me, John, there is absolutely no pressure to continue this, and that's what I've told my son as well. So uh. no, no hopes, no strength attached there. Yeah. So uh, give me an idea of like background. Um, you are a, a professor at Brigham Young University in religious studies, but who and where does the Hilton and the John Hiltons come from? Are you guys lifelong members of the church? Give me some background. So I was born in San Francisco, grew up in Seattle, and yeah, for several generations, my family has been members of the church um, on, on some sides, on a couple of sides. I'm a second or third generation member, but on other lines, it's back to the pioneers. And yeah, I grew up uh, 
in, in the Seattle area, like I said, served a mission in Colorado. I met my beautiful wife, Lonnie, at BYU, and we've been living happily ever after, or at least trying really hard to for the past 20 years. Uh, uh, again, it's one of those things that I have never heard of meeting a spouse at BYU, a rarity, but I'm glad to see that that worked out um, for you guys. Uh, <laughs> let me let me uh, pick up a couple of pieces. What's the church like uh, growing up in, um, in the Bay Area and then Seattle? So uh, I, I actually moved from San Francisco when I was two. So for me, it was just beautiful. I loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. But, um, I can't comment much beyond that. Growing up in Seattle was actually, I think, for me, the perfect place to grow up. The church was relatively strong, but not a, a dominant presence. So in my high school, there were probably 15 or 20 people in my circle of friends who were members of the church, and we had a, a kind of a close-knit group and opportunities for positive peer pressure, but lots of opportunities to be a light and to um, share the gospel with others. It was great. It, it's an interesting experience when you hear those that live in areas where like, they're the only member of the church in their high school, and your heart sort of goes out to them. But I would imagine, sort of in the West, you're talking about Seattle, to have that that core group, you have people from all different kind of, um, I don't want to say social structures, but like social groups, but you have the church that unites you into and I use the term click, but as a positive sort of click, right? A group that maybe you wouldn't be friends with those individuals otherwise, but because you have that commonality. Did you find that to be true? Yeah, that, that's a great way of describing it. Do you find do you find that those relationships exist into where you're at as far as life goes now? I, I guess I'm leading this a little bit because I remember my um like my priest's quorum there were, you know, there was the cool kid and the kind of the nerdy kid and all these things. And, and I was born and raised here in uh, in the Salt Lake area, but we were sort of united in this priest quorum and we're all still friends, but there is no reason that any of us would ever find ourselves together had it not been for the church. Yeah, that's really beautiful. You know, I think those, those friendships do go on. Just last month, I was not to lunch with one of my buddies from high school, and I, I think some of those connections— that the church helps forms exist forever. So you uh, you decide from Seattle to go on a mission, or did you go to BYU first? How did that all tra- take? I, I did do a, I did do a year at BYU, um, and then that also was a beautiful opportunity. My freshman award at BYU was another source, kind of like what you were describing, um, in terms of people from all different backgrounds and social groups. But again, I've stayed in touch with that freshman group from BYU ever since, and then yeah, served a mission in Colorado, and then came back and met my wife, Lonnie, about six months later. Was BYU always the goal? Because a lot of the Western colleges, I mean, there are institutes of religion at a lot of the Western colleges here in the United States. So in order to have that, like, um, you know, that I'm going to quote Mormon experience, you don't have to come to BYU anymore like you used to have to 30, 40 years ago. Uh, You know, it's just always been the plan to go to BYU. I I didn't apply to any other colleges and I, I don't I don't think I had like a real strong strategy around that. It was just I'm gonna to go to BYU. And so then you obviously did and, and and then met your wife. Is there anything um unique about that meeting experience that we should know? I I could actually take you to the exact room in the Wilkinson Center where we, we met. She was leading a leadership club. I was not a part of the club, but just by chance went with one of my friends one day and I immediately fell in love with her. 
but took her several months to return the favor. But uh, yeah, definitely a love at first sight experience for me. No, but real, but really a love at first sight because I think that everyone, in that sweet romantic way that we want to pay homage to our partners, were like, "I knew the second I." But was it was it really? And describe what that was like. So I, in my in my happy case, I have the proof because I wrote about it in my journal on the day that I met her, and I actually proposed to her. 12 months exactly from the day that we met and I read to her various journal entries that I had written over the course of our relationship and then was able to read what I had written about her on the first day we met. And it honestly was just immediate love. I don't know. It was amazing. When she tells the story, what took her so long? (laughs) Well, we probably could have a whole podcast just on that, Richie, but the short version of it is after our first date, I realized that I wasn't good enough for her. Uh, I read the scriptures and I, I found a verse that the verse is actually about war, not about dating at all. But as I likened this verse to myself, what it said to me was I needed to make myself a better person. So we had actually scheduled a second date, but I called and canceled our date so that I could embark in this rigorous self-improvement program to prepare myself to be a better person. So for four months, we didn't date at all because I was making myself a better person. And then once I had gotten to a certain point, asked her out again. And then for the next four months, we did some community service together every week. And I viewed that as a weekly date, but Mm. she viewed that as service. So after about eight months into what I thought was our relationship, four months where we hadn't seen each other, four months where we were doing service, we had a little DTR. And I was like, what's going on in our relationship? And And for people who don't know, DTR is define the relationship. Yeah, define the relationship. She said to me, like, define what relationship? Like, we have no, like, we, we do service. What are you talking about? So once we got all of that worked out, then uh, then things started to go a little bit better. Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna have to dive in a little bit more. You weren't good enough? What are you, what, what's going on here? Um, so that's a good question. Um, and I, I think that for all of us, we feel a lot more peace and satisfaction in our lives when we're doing, um, how would we say, I think Joseph Smith said it something along the lines of that, we can exercise faith when we're confident that we're walking in the path that God has for us. And it wasn't that I was doing anything bad in my life. I just wasn't fulfilling the measure of my creation, we could say. I watched a lot of TV, but when, when I went out, not that TV's bad, but like I just wasn't doing a ton. I didn't have a job. I didn't volunteer in the community. I wasn't doing a lot. And then when I went on the state with Lonnie and I found out she had a job, she spent time with her family, she was in the leadership club, she was doing all these great things in her life to magnify who she was and her God-given talents. And I realized I was just not doing that. And so it was a huge motivation for me and a wake-up call, because I don't believe that there's just one person that you're going to be destined to be married to. But, you know, I think at least I kind of grew up in my life, like hoping to meet this special someone. And I really have the feeling like I've met this special someone and I'm not good enough for her. If I was her, I wouldn't want to go out with me. And that wasn't meant to be like a harsh criticism of myself, just an opportunity to kind of tap into the vision that Heavenly Father has for me so that I could become who he wanted me to be. I have never heard of anything like this before. I mean, I guess, what, in talking it out, like I've heard of the people who are like, yeah, you know, I want to be able to, you know, either magnify my magnify my life calling or be able to do that, but who have been able to take that, that harsh, not harsh look, that hard look at themselves and be able to be like, yeah, I, uh, I'm, I am going too easy or certainly not doing all that the Lord expects to me. Was it pen to paper? Is that how you started that journey? Or you go out on the date and then you come home and you're like, nope, this ain't going to work. What did that look like from the first date? So 
I mean, I, I, after our first date, um, as I was driving home, I was on top of the world because I had, you know, asked her out for a second date and she said yes. As I was driving home, though, I started to have this little uneasy feeling inside and kind of having these feelings that I was sharing with you that I wasn't good enough for her. Mm-hmm. And I had learned, you probably learned, that if you have a problem, it's great to turn to the scriptures. So I prayed and I said, Heavenly Father, I'm going to study my scriptures right now and please help me to find a verse that's going to help me with this problem because I really don't feel like I'm good enough for her, but we've got a second date. I really want to pursue her. Should I pursue her? That was basically my question. And yeah. I randomly opened up my scriptures to Third Nephi chapter 3, verse 21. And again, it's right in the middle of the war chapters and the people want to go attack the Gadiant robbers. And I just start reading, but Gidgadoni said unto them, the Lord forbid. And I was so surprised because my question was, you know, should I pursue her? And I read this phrase, the Lord forbid. And if you keep reading in the verse, it talks about, we will prepare ourselves in the center of our lands and we will gather all our armies together. And what that's what the Lord said to me is, metaphorically speaking, that's what you need to do. So hmm. it's what you said. I got a pen and paper, I my patriarchal blessing, some recent general conference talks, the scriptures, and I kind of went on a little retreat with myself. I mean, I was a poor college student, so I didn't you know, go to an exotic location. It's just <laughs> my house, you know, my house in the temple. But yeah, I spent a lot of time praying and thinking about what is it that would help me be what Heavenly Father wants me to be. And... Over time, I started to work my way into that vision with a lot of divine help. And four months later, I still wasn't quite as good as she was, but I, I made some improvement. One thing that is kind of fun, if you, if you read the scripture carefully, it says, we will not go against them, but we will wait till they shall come against us. Hmm. And I took that really literally. So I called her up. I canceled our second date, embarked on this self-improvement program. Four months later, I really wanted to go out with her again, but the scripture had said, we will wait until they come against us. So I you know, tried all these clever tactics to get her to come to me, but nothing worked. Finally, at the end of the semester, I was going to be taking a class spring term, and she was the only person I knew who had successfully taken it. So I didn't want to go up against her, so I just wrote her a little email and said, do you have any suggestions for how I could succeed in this class? And she didn't write me back. She <laughs> called me. And oh. said, would you like to talk about it over lunch? And I thought, she's coming to me. And I'm like, the scripture is true. And then if you finish off the verse, it says, therefore, as the Lord liveth, if we do this, he will deliver them into our hands. What an interesting uh, literal application of something, as you point out, not at all, not at all about you, John. But is yeah, it? So there, just to be clear, I, I have no doubt that Mormon was not thinking of my dating life when he penned <laughs> 35 chapter 3. But I do think there's a powerful lesson there that the scriptures can give us guidance. And there are so many examples, and we've seen some even in a recent general conference talk where the scriptures spoke to someone. And oftentimes, I think it's the Holy Ghost combined with the words of scripture that can give us the message that we need. You know, along with that, so I had the opportunity to serve my mission in um, Cleveland. And part of that mission was Kirtland. And when I opened that and my friends were going to places like Austria and Australia, there was certainly a thing for me that was like, but I didn't recognize the power that, you know, the church historical sites within the Cleveland area would hold. But reading the scriptures and reading the words of the of the Lord through the prophet Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants, where he says, we'll go uh, to the Ohio and we'll be endowed from power on high. Like, for me, as I read that, I was like, yeah, bring it. Here we go. 
I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to get there. This is a new land. And even though, like you say, you know, the Lord wasn't speaking to me and to my particular mission, there was definitely that that connection with those uh, verse in Scripture to be like, yeah, okay, I got this. This this feels mm. applicable to me. Um Whenever we embark in these hard things, certainly I saw this with my mission, but you probably saw this with that four months transition. Were there times that you sort of were like, forget it, give up, I'm done, not worth it. She's not even, you know, there's no sort of guarantee she's going to be there for me at the end of this. Yeah, and I think that's a really natural part of growth and development are the setbacks and the times where we feel like I'm not good enough, I'm not going to make it. But there's something about prayer and perseverance to keep moving forward even though it's hard. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I, I really like, and I don't think either of us anticipated that this conversation would go down this uh, path. Uh, you have a new book that's coming out. It is called The Founder of Our Peace. And uh, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about what we can really do to find peace, all about your book and how people can check it out. But I want to take a break real quick. So we'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. <laughs> Hey, this is Dan the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. It's our ultra-mega back-to-school blowout sale. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars of ultra-high-quality laptops and desktops on sale for up to 50% off the original prices. We've got demos, scratch and dents, trade-ins, and funny-colored computers. It's crazy! Remember, you get a lifetime service guarantee on any PC Laptops brand computer. That means if you mess up your Windows or you get a virus or spyware, it's covered forever. Got an old yucky computer? No problem. We'll take it in on trade and we'll transfer all your pictures, music, and all your stuff to your PC Laptops computer for free. When you get your computer from PC Laptops, we'll make sure you're taken care of for a lifetime. To make it impossible to resist, we're doing 12-month special financing on any PC Laptops desktop or laptop computer. Have I lost my mind? Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, where computers start at $7.99. PC Laptops, we love you. Here in the second block of the Culture Hall, you love what we're doing. You've enjoyed the consistent and more episodes that we put out. Uh, A special thanks to all those Patreon saints of the Cultural Hall, those who have gone to patreon.com slash the Cultural Hall and pledged a couple bucks. You can do three, five, or ten to help this continue to go on. We love that you do that and you get to be a part of that secret not sacred group on Facebook where everyone who loves the uh, the cultural hall hangs out and talks about the different episodes. Again, if you want to do that, we would love to have you. Patreon.com slash the cultural hall. John, you, uh, as we were kind of off mic a little bit, you were talking about listening to some other episodes of the cultural hall and mentioned, you know, we've had Jane Clayson Johnson on a couple of times and, and mentioned in particular about this idea of comparison. I'd like to go down that, that road a little bit with you. Uh, you mentioned, man, he's had Jane Clayson Johnson on. We talked about Brad Wilcox. Do you, do you feel in equal to these people? Yeah. You know, just a, since you mentioned Brad here, here's a little story about that. So, Several years ago, Brad and I were speaking together at a, uh, it was kind of like a girls' camp. And I was going to speak first, then, so I was getting set up, and Brad would speak after me. And this little young young girl, maybe 12 years old, beehive at the time, we would call them, uh, came up to me, and she was carrying a camera. And I thought, oh, that's so precious. Maybe she read one of my books. She wants to get a picture with me. Mm-hmm. And she just looked at me with these big eyes, and she said, are you... Brad Wilcox. <laughs> and I said, oh, no. No, he's the next speaker. And she said, oh, 
and walked away. Oh, <laughs> but, oh man. Um, but, but so I, I do think that comparison is real. It, it, for whatever sphere we're in, it is common nature for us to compare ourselves to others. And in the, in the book that I recently published that you mentioned, I have a chapter on finding peace through perspective. In other words, taking comparison, using all of the natural tendencies we have to compare ourselves and then flipping that on its head so that rather than giving us the challenges and the discouragement of comparison, we can have the peace that comes through being grateful for both what is and what isn't. You know, I want to pivot, uh, just a nice hard pivot into your book. Uh, I I haven't been able to read all of it, obviously, uh, but I love the first line. So if you're thinking, oh, I've enjoyed this conversation with John Hilton III so far, I wonder if I would like his book. This is what I love. This is the first line in the book, The Founder of Our Peace. The question, have you ever struggled with fear, depression, anxiety, or worry? And I feel like that encompasses the entire human experience. One, Everyone falls into at least one of those, so this book would be applicable to them. And following right after that is the idea that we're not alone. One of the things that some of us feel is like, oh, I, this is a modern problem. This is so new. But if you start reading through some scriptures, you see that Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, he was greatly afraid and depressed. Helaman was filled with fear. Ammon was depressed in his heart. Jacob felt great anxiety. I mean, these are, this is scriptural language, and over and over we start to see, oh, these are the common feelings of even the scriptural heroes. What lessons can we learn from them to help us in our day? So within the book, I also appreciated that you said, you know, each chapter in this book uses scriptures, stories, modern research, or other illustrations to describe attacks on our peace and the principles that will deflect them. So is this like a, I'm struggling, help me with these different principles kind of book? Or how, how, how do you come at the founder of our peace? So, I mean, ultimately, Jesus Christ is the founder of our peace. And that, that actual phrase, founder of peace, comes from Abinadi. When he's teaching the people, he uses that phrase to describe Jesus as a title for the Savior. He calls Jesus the founder of peace. So, ultimately, we will find peace through Jesus Christ. And I think that along the way, there's going to be strategies for, you can call them tactics or tools, whatever you want to call them, that, that can help us. And some of those will come from modern psychology some from maybe obscure scripture stories that we never noticed before. So we see someone who was struggling with some emotional challenges and look to what did they do when they faced difficult times. And it, I don't know, there's so much to that, right? Like as we, as we look and uh, going again, uh, you know, it's interesting that we're going to come back to this comparison thing. Like I look at it and I go, oh, well, yeah, I mean, Alma or Abinadi or, you know, all these, are all these different, um, you know, these different folks that we read about, like, we would look at them and we would compare our struggles to theirs and we would not see a similarity. Well, let's take a look at a concrete example. So you've got the prophet Moroni. Moroni's, think of his situation. I mean, if anyone could be discouraged, it's him. His father's killed. All of his people are killed. He's on the run. He never knows day to day if he's going to survive. I mean, his life is really tough. Meanwhile, he's trying to finish the Book of Mormon, and so he's doing edits on the Book of Ether, creating it for us, and he realizes that the brother of Jared is this incredible writer. His words are so powerful, and that's the context for Ether chapter 12, 
Um, let me just read. This is Ether 12, 23. Moroni, as he's writing, he's talking with the Lord. He says, Lord, the Gentiles will mock at these things, meaning the Book of Mormon, because of our weakness in writing. And notice what he does next. He says, Thou hast not made us mighty in writing like unto the brother of Jared. For thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty, even as thou art. So you can see right there, he's clearly comparing. He's saying, look, my writing stinks. I'm not as powerful as the brother of Jared. Mm -hmm. And that leaves him discouraged. And that's the context in which the Lord says, Ether 1227, my grace is sufficient. The whole idea of I will make weak things become strong into you that we've, we've heard that verse a lot. The context of that verse is, Moroni is discouraged because he feels like he's not as good of a writer as the brother of Jared. And I think that's one powerful tool for comparisons to remember that the Lord doesn't say, yeah, you actually need to improve your writing skills. He says, my grace is sufficient. I'm enough. Jesus is enough. That's a really important message for peace. Well, and the, and those verses are the amazing precursor, like you mentioned, to the 1227, which is weak things to become strong. Do you I, I know that on the on the surface level, the immediate reaction to anyone is, do you believe that, that God can make weak things to become strong? But have you seen that? For sure. In my, you're saying like in my own life or the yeah, lives of yeah, other people? Yeah, and, and the lives of other people and in your own life, uh, a time when, in fact, you know, we're comparing ourselves, we're looking at that, we kind of get down on ourselves, all of those things, and then we're able to recognize our weakness, but also be able to pivot into the things that make us strong. Well, I mean, so a clear example in my life has to do with the, my extreme lack of handyman skills. So I am not good at fixing anything. I've tried and failed so many times. A few years ago, I thought, I'm going to give this one more shot. I'm going to build a swing set for my children. So I went to the store, Toys R Us, bought a powerful swing set kit. There was 27 steps to building the swing set. The first one took me eight hours. I mean, this was torture. Oh, wow. But I... I stayed with it. I got tons of help from my brothers-in-law. After three months, the swing set was built, and I felt so proud of myself. Everyone swing in. It was a magical day. And I did have one snag. One of my daughters came up to me, and she said, hey, Dad, there's only three monkey bars. And I was like, honey, you will love those monkey bars. Like, cherish each one because I'm never building another swing set. So that was a Friday or Saturday. We finished the swing set. A couple days later, we went over to a neighbor's house or my brother-in-law's house for a family home evening. And as we walked into the backyard, the first thing I noticed was his swing set. It had five monkey bars. And I was like, oh, man, I hate my swing set. <laughs> but I realized, I realized immediately, wow, wait a second. 48 hours ago, I loved my swing set. Now I hate it. The only difference is the comparison. And I, I think because I was able to consciously realize that, like, I, I'm still struggling with this. I, I'm, I'm still... I think many, it's not like a magic bullet where, oh yeah, like I never compare myself anymore. But I think one of the keys is to start to realize when I'm doing it and then apply strategies to move forward. Think about um, a baby. So a, a brand new baby does not spend time reflecting on the fact that she can't walk. She's what we would call unconsciously unable mm -hmm. to walk. But then maybe six months later, she sees her peers walking. She wants to walk but she can't. She's consciously unable. And the moment that we all celebrate is when she can take one step if she works really hard at it. It's the move to being consciously able. And as she keeps practicing over time, she becomes unconsciously able to walk. And I think that's a really helpful framework 
to think about some of these skills. So for many years, I was unconsciously unable to control comparison. Like I didn't realize I was doing it. It was just eating at me in my life. But then as I started to study and learn some of the things that we talked about in the book, I became consciously unable to control comparison. So at least I was aware of it. It was a step in the right direction. And I think for me, I've been able to move to where I'm now consciously able, like I'm, I'm like that baby taking the first step. If I really try, I can say to myself, hey, you know, it looks like you're comparing and that's not making you feel good. Let's do some other strategies to help you. And I think the hope and the confidence that I have for myself and for everyone is that as we keep on working on these patterns of peace, we can get to the point where we can unconsciously, we're unconsciously able to apply them in our lives. What a gift to be able to uh, to relieve some of that. I mean, I, I, I hate to say that that's the human experience to constantly look at what we don't have and see others that do have it and have whether it's resentment or anger or self-hate or whatever those things are. That's a that's a huge gift of peace that people will be able to um, look at, sort of self-examine and gain from your book. What are other principles that uh, that are taught within the founder of our peace that people are going to find uh, to be really helpful? Well, what I think uh, has to do with the psychological principle that much of what we worry about doesn't happen. And you can see this um, in the scriptures. For example, if you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob does a couple of tricks on his brother and then winds up leaving town. He goes, he marries Rachel and Leah, he has this great life. And when he comes back to his hometown, he finds out that his brother Esau is approaching with 400 armed servants. And I, I love the scriptural verse there. It says that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he goes through all of these elaborate precautions for what he's going to do when he meets his brother. But when he finally meets his brother, his brother just gives him a big hug and a kiss. Hmm. Absolutely nothing that Jacob was worried about happened. And we actually, uh, psychological research has verified the same thing, that most of what we worry about actually does not happen. Now, obviously, some bad things do happen, and that's a, a separate topic that maybe we can talk about in just a minute if we have, yeah. if we have a moment. Yeah. Bad things are going to happen to us. But the reality is most of the things that we're worried about aren't going to happen. And if they do happen, our ability to bounce back and handle those things is better, stronger than we often perceive it is. So the bottom line is that much of what we're worried about, imagine it's like a tiny golf ball, but because I overestimate the likelihood that it's going to happen and how bad it's going to be, and I underestimate my ability to bounce back, what is actually the size of a golf ball appears to be bigger than the size of a basketball. Mm. We inflate our worries just like Jacob did. Mm. And I think seeing that and being aware of that can help us maybe step back from some of the things that are really stressing us out. You know, uh, that that's something that, I, again, I, I feel like people listening are just nodding along going, yeah, that too, John. I do that too. Like, I, I don't even think that my, my problems really, if I'm able to look at it with a calm rested mind that are even the size of a golf ball, but I'm able to blow them up into one of those big like yoga sitting balls <laughs> that, you know, just seems so much bigger. Then I take them on or, you know, take that moment of peace and, and recognize God's hand or whatever the thing is. And then quickly it's like, no, that was not even an issue at all. But I had managed to blow it up into this, into this almost insurmountable thing. One question you can ask yourself is, Think about six months ago. What were you worried about six months ago? Are, are those things on your mind today? Did the worries of six months ago, they 
put your life into this huge crater? Mm. Probably not. Now, in some rare instances, yes, they, they have. But in most cases, we can't even remember what we were worried about six months ago. Yeah, I, as I'm trying to rack my brain thinking of those things, and certainly given the light of recent events, that has helped me <laughs> to be able to forget <laughs> six months ago. Yeah, right. to give me a little perspective for sure. But But I think you're right. I mean, with maybe a few exceptions... I can't think of a single thing that I was worrying about six months ago that today is is that worry. I want to take another break real quick, and I want to come back in the third block. I want to talk about the um, the idea, the concept of being still. I have had the opportunity to kind of think about this, experience this with some things that, uh, that my wife and I have been working on within uh, the walls of our own home, and I would be curious as to what you bring to that discussion uh, within the book, The Founder of Our Peace, talking with John Hilton, the third back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, have you been enjoying this episode or what? Uh, a special thanks again to uh, Brad Wilcox, now a counselor in the Young Men's Presidency, a previous episode of the Cultural Hall. He, like you, made a suggestion of a great guest for the Cultural Hall. If you'd like to do that, you can send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com, or you can find us at the Cultural Hall wherever you social media eyes. Media eyes? I don't know if that's the word. Um, but you can find us. We're at the Cultural Hall. We'd love to hear from you there. And if, uh, if you'd like, there is that group of folks that's not the Patreon group. It's the Cultural Hall Back Row. That's a, a place for people that really like to talk about each of the episodes but aren't willing to do that Patreon pledge. You can find us there, the Cultural Hall Back Row. Uh, and we'll save a seat for you, of course, John Hilton III. Um, being still. Talk about what that means to you and why, why that helps bring us peace and how the Savior does that. I think one of the best ways to get into the topic of being still is actually a really ancient story. It's about the prophet named Nehemiah. Actually, the scriptures, I I use that wrong, the scriptures don't refer to him as a prophet. He was a servant in the Persian king's house. This is during the time when Babylon has already destroyed Jerusalem, and now Persia is the superpower. And some of his buddies from Jerusalem come, and they tell him how torn down the walls of Jerusalem are, like the whole place has been trashed. And Nehemiah feels so discouraged. And then God puts it into his heart to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So he goes back, and as they start the labor of rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, there's this little scripture that most people never notice. It's Nehemiah chapter 4.10. They say, there is so much rubbish, we are not able to build the wall. And I think this is, has a great lesson for us about being still and finding peace. The first order of business for them was to clear out all the rubbish so they could build what God had put into Nehemiah's heart. And I think one of the challenges we all face in our lives with being still is that there is so much 
rubbish, whether that's physical possessions and mess or too many obligations or so we've mentioned social media and being overwhelmed with just keeping up with digital distractions. Mm-hmm. All of this rubbish in our lives makes it really hard to be still and have peace. Hmm. And, and using the physical representation of being able to then clear the rubbish, I mean, for me to be able to clear that ground, to be able to build a foundation, like my mind, for, for whatever reason, is wrapped up in uh, the hymn, Be Still My Soul, and how in those times that... Um, like that I haven't felt like I've been able to build anything up that that physical representation in my mind of rubbish like that song for me sort of in in a derivative the savior just sort of clears the space and then I can say okay now I can I can rebuild now I have gotten back to the center of who I am now I'm I am still be still my soul I can build think about um probably one of the best places for stillness is the temple and oh yeah it's wiped clean of distractions, right? I can't be looking at my phone. I'm, I'm just blocked out to do this one specific thing. It's a very clean location. And so then the question is, like, how can, I, how can I bring more of that into my life? Is there maybe there's physical rubbish in my house that's actually distracting me or causing me problems that I should get rid of? Or maybe I really am just overscheduled and I need to find ways to cut back so that I can have that stillness of soul. You know, before the break, you mentioned that this is something that you and your wife have been talking about. What, what have you been seeing in your world as far as being still? So the big thing that, um, that, that we try and do is because you mentioned overscheduled, right? I am the king of overscheduling. It is, I'm here and then I'm there and then I'm doing all this. And, and sometimes in just the sweetest way that she is able to do, she will just say things like, how about we just sit? And I'm like, yeah, mm. sit and do what? Like sit and journal or like sit and watch a TV show <laughs> or like sit and tell each other how, you know, how much we love each other or like sit and, you know, make our goals about the future and where we want to be and see where we're. And, and and I love her dearly. She just is like, no, no, no. How about just sit? And I go, oh, but the fear of and my mind won't be able to possibly. And I think of every possible excuse as to why I could not do that. Some of it, I think, is fear, but really it's just like, oh, oh, just this opportunity of, of being still, of just sitting. She is the champ of it. I am miserable at it. But in the times that I feel like I've really been able to access it, there is tremendous value in being still. It's not doing nothing. It's just being still. That's really powerful. I totally agree. And I think to get there, one of the challenges that we have to decide or questions we have to ask ourselves is, what will we not do? What am I going to give up Mm -hmm. so that I have room in my schedule to be still? Earlier, we talked about scriptural heroes. One of mine is Alma the Younger. So think about him. He is, like you, ultra busy. He's the chief judge, the highest political office in the land, and he's the high priest, highest office in the church. So he's super busy. He can't do everything. And ultimately, he decides to quit his job as the chief judge so that he can focus on his role as the high priest. And it's not that being the chief judge was bad. It was just he had too much to do. And I love this idea that Alma had to think carefully about what will I not do, Mm. give that up, and then he could do what was most important. So I think for you and for me, we have to say it's important to be still. So what will I not purchase? What activities will I stop doing? And Sister Michelle Craig said this, peace comes in knowing that being more does not necessarily equate to 
doing more. Hmm. Hmm. Like, like you said, we, we often are in this frenetic pace that, man, if I stop for five minutes, yeah, I'm going to turn and be lazy or I'm not going to fulfill my potential. But being still is so valuable. Yeah, members of the church seem to be driven by that. We're a people that get stuff done. And sometimes we need to be driven by the people that, like, we're the people who can allow the Lord to affect us, to be still. I like right. that. I like that. Let me, uh, as we kind of come to the close of this whole thing, the book is called The Founder of Our Peace. How do people get it? So it's, uh, it's a Deseret book, uh, Amazon. Right right now, um, with COVID-19 happening currently, obviously online is the best way to, to get anything. Richie, maybe before we wrap this up, can I share one last thought from the book? Absolutely. So, because we've talked about a lot of things, and I think it's really important to know that sometimes things will not work out. For me, one of the most powerful insights that I've gained in the process of writing the book is that if you look at people in the scriptures, most of the time, their lives do not work out very mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. We focus on Alma the Younger repented and like, awesome for his dad, Alma the Elder. But what about Lehi? Laman and Lemuel never repent. He goes to his grave sorrowing because his sons didn't follow his example. And we think, yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they escaped the fiery furnace. That's awesome. What about Abinadi? He didn't. Over and over again, if we look carefully, we'll find that our scriptural heroes had really tough lives, and often things did not work out for them. Think about the prophet Mormon. He spends his whole life trying to corral his people, get them to repent, fight against the Lamanites, ultimately fails. 60 years of effort, temporal failure. Mm. Now, in the long run, things work out for Mormon. In the long run, things work out for Lehi and Abinadi. But we often don't look at the long run in our own lives. I remember giving a talk on on a related topic, and a woman wrote me a note afterwards, and she said something to the effect of, if things, if the righteous are blessed, how come I have failed no matter how hard I've tried and no matter how righteous I've been? And sometimes the scriptural phrase, if you keep the commandments, you'll prosper in the land, means if I do what's right, I will prosper today, right now. Yeah. That's just not true. No. I think if we can get rid of the expectation, everything's going to work out for me today, right now, and remember the scriptural expectation that through Jesus Christ, all wounds will be healed now or in the next life. That's a really important frame for feeling peace. Have you ever struggled with fear, depression, anxiety, or worry? If so, you are not alone. That's the promise from the book, The Founder of Our Peace, John Hilton III. You know from listening to The Cultural Hall that you get asked three questions at the end of this episode. I will ask those of you now. The first one is, do you have a calling? If so, what is it? So I was recently called to be a counselor in a YSA stake presidency at the Provost, Provost Ape Stake. Um, it's been a very unique calling. Our 90% of our stake moved out about three weeks after we were called. So I, I can't really give you any uh, ideas or insights into that calling yet, but stay tuned. But you are super serving the 10%. That's right. Yeah. That's right. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? So for me, I think the calling that I would just love to have is gospel doctrine teacher. I love learning. I love teaching. And that's, I did have that calling for a few months. It was great. So I'm just waiting to, to go back to my old calling. Is there a particular uh, like book of scripture or topic within gospel doctrine that you would like to teach the most? Like, are you an Old Testament guy? Or are you a New Testament? The, the, you know, Doctrine and Covenants? What, what, what's your jam? So I love all scripture, but for me, my favorite to teach uh, is probably the Old Testament because we know it the least. So it mm-hmm. gives me the chance to study a little bit better 
But, you know, if we're saying the Book of Mormon, you're like, hey, guys, I got this amazing story about Ammon. Everyone's like, all right, I already know the story. Right. But, you know, when you say, like, hey, today we're going to talk about Hezekiah's Passover, people are like, who's Hezekiah? You know, what's the Passover? So I think there's lots, lots of fun opportunities in the Old Testament to do the, the lesser-known stories. And then the final question, and interpret this however you will, what is your favorite part of your faith? For me, I think the favorite part of my faith is the opportunity to grow closer to Jesus Christ. One of the challenges I think that we have is, and this this might be true of all generations, or maybe just me growing up, I think there was uh, so much this idea of, I want to bear my testimony, I know the church is true, and a big focus on the church is true. And and I believe that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true and living church on the earth, but I think sometimes we forget that the whole point is Jesus. Mm. And I love that in our faith, it is about Jesus Christ. It's so the, the church is true and that's good. But what's good about it is that it gives me opportunities to grow closer to Jesus. That's what I love about our church. Yeah. The founder of our peace. Sometimes we forget about Jesus, which seems like, I mean, it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It seems like, man, how could you forget it? But we managed to for some reason and uh, grateful for your message. Again, you can pick that book up uh, at Deseret Book, probably online. It's a little safer. It's a little less COVID-y right now, uh, but encourage you to check that out. Uh, John Hilton III, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen to it this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen to it next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat.